Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. I will be talking about 2 Nephi chapters 20 to 25. 2 Nephi is a wonderful book. I mean, 1 Nephi, of course, is the story of Lehi's family leaving Jerusalem and all that that entailed. And we get to know this tremendous character of Nephi and about his family, and we certainly see the trials that are put upon him, and we see his tremendous faith. Again, the theme of his life in so many ways is represented in what he says, I will go and do what the Lord commands. And that go and do attitude and message is persistent throughout his story. He testifies it again and again, and he certainly demonstrates it again and again. I mean, it's a tremendous example, and I have fallen in love with Nephi at a deeper level, even though he has always been a magnificent hero of Scripture. I am saddened that so many in the church have seemed to fall into this trap of moral relativism, where they start to talk as though Laman and Lemuel are exonerated from being murderous toward not only Nephi, but their father Lehi, until their very lives are threatened or an angel shows up. This is deep iniquity. And to have moderated to the point in some of the discussions that you hear online, or even in some Sunday school classes, from what I hear, that maybe they weren't that bad, or this is some sort of a slanted view, or we're all a little bit like Laman and Lemuel. Those are dangerous ideas, brothers and sisters, and I hope that you'll talk to your children and think and ponder about it yourself, that no, there is good and there is evil. One of the big commandments that our church tends to struggle with is to judge righteous judgment. In many cases, we try not to judge at all, which is a big mistake. And then when we do judge, we judge with moral relativism. At least in this case, that's what would be going on when people are trying to soften the seriousness of the sins of Laman and Lemuel. I'm not the final judge. None of us is the final judge except for Jesus Christ, and he will get it right. On the other hand, he wants us to make appropriate intermediate judgment, and it is not, it's not appropriate intermediate judgment to look at these characters who were so wicked that Nephi is directed by the Spirit to leave and leave behind the temple and their first land of settling in the middle of the night so that Laman and Lemuel don't try to stop them and gain power over them. And then they give their children this everlasting hatred of the Nephites that is definitely a curse of the fathers that becomes such a powerful tradition that the Lamanites continually seek to destroy the Nephites whenever they get an opportunity. So yeah, let's not fall into the trap of moral relativism. Let's judge righteous judgment. Those things which lead us to Christ are good. Those things which lead us away are bad. It's really that simple. Check out Moroni 7, again, to review that. But I hope you'll discuss that with your children. Great speech by Elder Oaks, then Elder Oaks at BYU called Judge Not and Judging. Tremendous information there if you want more discussion about righteous judgment. Okay, let's go on. Here in 2 Nephi, Throughout this book, we get really powerful doctrine. Of course, it begins with Lehi's last testimony to his children and grandchildren, some really powerful doctrine and testimony that Lehi shares. 
And then we have Jacob teach, and Jacob quotes Isaiah, and then Nephi comes in and quotes Isaiah because they really want these messages to be in the record for their own children and grandchildren and all their posterity. And it is, and it's for us in the last days. And we know that this book was really written not just for their children, but really for the last days. This was something that the Lord instructed them to leave, and they knew that it would go to a remnant of their seed. They saw, because God showed to them in vision, what would happen, and that eventually their people would be destroyed, but that the seed of their posterity would mingle with the seed of their brethren's posterity, so some would be preserved, even though that they would dwindle in unbelief for many, 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 many centuries, and then that this marvelous work and a wonder would come forth with a message to the remnant of their seed and also to the Gentiles. Again, we like to call them Ephraimite Gentiles because they were a branch of the house of Israel. But we see this wonderful doctrinal message that they are recording on gold plates. Could not have been an easy task to write what they wrote on those gold plates, but they did it so that we could have this information in our day. Now, let's look at some of these messages that we're getting from Isaiah. And and again, I hope that you're not worried too much about the parts that are maybe a little harder to understand. I hope that instead you're really keying on the themes of Isaiah, the prophecies of Christ in his first coming and his second coming. God's great love for his covenant people, but the tendency of the covenant people to go lusting after idols, lusting after Babylon. And so the Lord has to keep calling them back, prophesying difficulties to them, destruction, scourging them over the centuries for their unbelief and for their idolatry, but ultimately loving them throughout all of that and being willing to restore them again to greatness and to his covenant as soon as they are willing to obey. So we see that theme again and again. Let's look at chapter 20 quickly here. We're going to, again, touch lightly on some of these wonderful themes. Let's look at verse 11 in chapter 20. In the chapter heading here, we see that the destruction of Assyria is a type of destruction of the wicked in the second coming. And again, we're reading these words and reviewing them again, hopefully studying and pondering and gaining even better understanding this time around, right here in the days before Christ's second coming. There are many signs which have already been given of Christ's second coming. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but if we aren't paying attention, it will overtake us as a thief in the night. And if we are paying attention, it won't. So we may not know the day or the hour, but we will see the coming of the Lord drawing nearer and nearer, and will not be so surprised when he comes if we are heeding these words. So look what he says here, that of course, this perpetual pattern of the wicked are destroyed, and they will be when Christ comes to cleanse the earth. So just going to look quickly here at verse 11. Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and to her idols? In other words, the judgment of the Lord is just. He doesn't have different sets of laws for his people as opposed to people who are not of the house of Israel. What he says to one, he says to all. He is no respecter of persons. The laws apply equally. Those who seek idols and worship idols and go after Babylon ultimately are destroyed. Those who repent can be saved. 
both his people of the covenant and the people outside the covenant. So I think that's a really important reminder of that in a vivid way. Verse 11, again, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Absolutely. The same laws always apply. And then I love this image when he's talking about, again, the people who are not acknowledging God. Verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? That's a really nice poetic image. Should the axe boast against the person who is wielding the axe? The axe is not useful unless the maker of the axe or the user of the axe is taking it into that action. So is the axe going to boast? Because the axe can't do anything without that person. And he goes on, shall the saw mightily itself or magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. Like, think about it. All these images are, I think, lovely images about like, we are the creation of God. Are we boasting ourselves against the creator? Do we think we know better? Well, so often it seems as if we do take that approach. We act as if our opinion is better than God's or that God's gospel hasn't thought of our idea. And all the people who get trapped in that really lose a lot of light in my observation and my experience because they are, again, vaunting themselves before God as if the X can vaunt itself or boast against the one that actually is using the axe. How many times do we have to hear this from the prophets? Moses' great vision there that he comes back from in the Pearl of Great Price, right there in the first chapter, and says, well, for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never before supposed. Like, I really didn't understand. And Moses was a righteous man before. But now he's like, wow, wow. I really had not caught the entire picture here of how insignificant we are next to the glory of God. But are we going to boast ourselves against We go like, well, God doesn't have as good an opinion about LGBT stuff as I do. Or maybe God just hasn't told his prophets enough, so they're not asking the right questions, and they're going to change the whole thing on marriage. Or, you know, it's not really accurate to say that God doesn't make mistakes with gender. Like, maybe he put me in the wrong body. Maybe he put my child in the wrong body. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, of course, there are birth defects. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the difference between men and women, boys and girls. Are we really vaunting ourselves against God and saying he doesn't know what he's talking about when he says that he created male and female and that the eternal bond is between a husband and a wife? Otherwise, as Elder Christofferson said in our last conference, we are left without roots or branches. We have no ancestry. We have no posterity if we don't support and accept the doctrine of marriage as between a man and a woman. This is an eternal principle, brothers and sisters. Roots and branches can only come from that divine design of our Heavenly Father. Does the axe vaunt itself against the one who wields it? Let's be cautious. Let's take that warning and be humble before the Lord and trust in his word. Let's look at chapter 21, verse 4. 
but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Now there are many verses like this in Scripture. Isaiah repeats this theme many times, as do other prophets again and again, that Christ will judge the nations and that he will judge with righteousness. It will be perfect. We can trust in it. Nobody gets away with anything, and every circumstance and every extenuating circumstance is taken into perfect consideration by the Lord. He does not hold people accountable for things which are not their fault, and he will never do that. He understands exactly where agency begins and ends, It will be perfect, and we can leave it to him. That's why we don't try to make final judgments or to condemn anybody. That is above our pay grade, but we do need to make intermediate judgments, and then we can have the utmost assurance that Christ, the perfect judge, will handle everything in exactly the right way. Nobody will be left in the corner saying, I need a recount, or I think somebody got away with something. That's not going to happen With righteousness, Christ shall judge. Then there comes some lovely millennial talk, and he talks about, that's another one of Isaiah's themes, that, you know, the lamb shall lie down with the lion, except it's not that. I always say that, and one of my daughter's faith has uh, corrected me, (laughs) because really, it doesn't say the lion and the lamb. It says, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. This is verse 6 of chapter 21. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, but the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, That's Jesus Christ, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Of course, these promises are beautiful, and they are promises for the covenant people. In the next verse 11, the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. He will not forget the covenant he has made with his people. Let's jump to chapter 22 and look at verse 2. Such beautiful words here that Isaiah uses, and we do memorialize these in different songs, you know, choir numbers and things like this. Most of us are very familiar with these words. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Those words mean even more to me now than they did even just a few months ago. I have always sought to trust the Lord And now I feel it stretching to new levels. It'd be nice if we could stretch without the pain, but I can see that that is needful, that God does not inflict pain because he likes to see us suffer, but because there is no other way. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Chapter 23, again reading the heading there. 
The destruction of Babylon is a type of destruction of the second coming. It shall be a day of wrath and vengeance. Babylon, the world, shall fall forever. So again, a very repeated theme here is that the wicked will be destroyed. And that's in and out of the house of Israel so that God can then recover his covenant people who desire him and fulfill his promises toward them. Let's look at verse 11. We're still in chapter 23. And I will punish the world for evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay down the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold. And again, often in my mind during this challenging time, is that that gold is refined in the furnace of affliction. And there is no other way. And it's all to the purposes of the plan. It's all to the purposes for which God presented his plan to us in the pre-earth life, which is that we can have what he has, that we can be given all that he offers us, that we can become joint heirs with his holy son, Jesus Christ. Unbelievably generous. But it does require the refining of the furnace of affliction. And this is for our good. As Joseph Smith and all the other prophets heard, that all these things shall give the experience and be for thy good, to prepare us for what God wants to give us. And I talk a lot about our need for trusting God, but can you see how this creates the opportunity for God to trust us? Can God trust me? Can he turn his back on me and know that I will not forget him? Can he be hidden from me temporarily? When I say turn his back on me, I don't mean in any sense of betrayal. I mean he can look elsewhere and not be seeing me. Well, of course, he can see me all the time, but you know what I mean. Can he put his focus elsewhere and know that I will continue in the path of the covenant, whether or not somebody is watching, whether or not somebody can see my secret acts? No. Can I be trusted of the Lord? And that is what happens in this furnace of affliction in the valley of the shadow. It's that not only do I get to stretch my trust in the Lord, but he gets to Trust me. He loves all his children, but which ones is he going to give the keys to the vault? Can he give the keys to the kingdom to all his children? Of course not. Because some will lie and deceive. Some will disobey the minute they think they can get away with it. How much can the Lord trust me? And here in chapter 23, the very last line, we see another one of the themes repeated that we've been talking about that Isaiah treats again and again. Yea, for I will be merciful unto my people, but the wicked shall perish. Let's say this about judgment. Brothers and sisters, again, in our world of moral relativism and in our world of liberation theology and critical race theory, all of these Worldly philosophies are basically trying to remove the responsibility from the individual. They're trying to say that the whole world can be seen as the oppressors and the oppressed. And if you are oppressed, it's not your fault. And you have no need to change. You have no need to take ownership and responsibility for your own life. Instead, you can look elsewhere and blame somebody else for what's happening to you. 
This never works, brothers and sisters. This never works, and it's completely contrary to the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is that all men must repent, say nothing but repentance to this generation. And we talked about that last week with the review of the plan of salvation by Jacob, that the bottom line message was repent. Repent so that the Lord can do his saving work and lift us to his stature. But we must repent. We are responsible. Now, is life completely fair? Of course not. So if we want to get lost in that, we can always find an excuse. Oh, somebody did this to me, or it wasn't my fault, or, you know, I got hurt. Well, again, that's going to be true of all of us, and only Christ can compare crosses. So why are we getting caught in that discussion instead of just owning our own path and using our agency to choose God? Whatever our situation, remember that theme or that line that David O. McKay saw on his mission, whatever thou art, act well thy part. Wherever we start, God will take care of the inequities. God will fix all of that in the last day. But what is always fair and true in this life is that we can either choose God or we can reject him. Whatever our circumstances, we can choose God or we can reject him. That is the fairness, ultimately, of the plan, and God will fix all the rest of it. Remember that line from Preach My Gospel? Everything that is unfair in this life will be made fair and made right through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Those things don't matter in this life. They just are part of the environment that allows for us to demonstrate our choosing God or our rejection of God. Chapter 24 has some really interesting bits here. Let's look at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Like Satan has a lot of power temporarily on this earth. He certainly has raised up the rich and famous. He has worked through the kings and the priests and the popes and the, you know, armies and all kinds of of people have been doing his bidding. And he does have power to grant them some temporary measures of worldly success. And yet, in the end, this is what will be said. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? And going on, of course, it talks about how he wanted to ascend above God. But let's jump over to verse 15, thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. And this language that comes next in verse 16 is so powerful to me. They that see thee. So this is after the coming of Christ, at the end of the entire plan, probably, you know, we're talking about the end of the millennium. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee. So yes, after the last final battle between good and evil, where good triumphs and evil is banished, from God's presence. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and shall consider thee and shall say, is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? Like, let's phrase that another way. What if we translated it this way? What did he say his name was? <laughs> what, what did he say his name was? Is that Lucifer? Yeah, seriously? That was the guy that gave us so much trouble on earth? Because he's nothing now. He's nothing. There is no such thing as ignominy in the hereafter. Let's go on, verse 17. And made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. 
and opened not the door of his prisoners because he had no power to save. Skipping to the end of 20. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. So on this earth, we use a term infamy, right? And like a day that shall live in infamy when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. But what does it mean? It means famous in a bad way. That somebody is famous for doing something terrible. So it's a negative thing, but there is certainly some notoriety and fame and attention attached to that. But what we're reading here is that infamy will not exist in the hereafter. Nobody will be famous for doing bad things. They will basically fade away. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. And people will look upon Satan and go like, is this the guy who uh, shook the heavens and the earth and the kingdoms, whatever? Is he, this is a guy? Because like, there's nothing here. There is no glory. There's no light. There's no love. No infamy. Brothers and sisters, there's only one way to maximize our life on this planet. It's choosing God. It's not rebelling. Chapter 25, wonderful chapter. Now we are not quoting Isaiah so much, but Nephi is going to explain a little bit more about why he likes to quote Isaiah. My mother told me this one time when I was quite young, maybe in high school. She said that the first time she was reading through, as an adult, reading through the Book of Mormon, she was in Second Nephi and reading through these Isaiah chapters and frankly becoming a little discouraged because she said it was hard for me to understand and the language and the culture, anyway, all that. And so she was feeling a little bit tired of it. And then she got to chapter 25 in Second Nephi and verse 4 really caught her attention. Give ear unto my words, for because the words of Isaiah are not plain unto you, nevertheless, they are plain unto all those that are filled with the spirit of prophecy. And she was like, ouch, ouch, I guess I don't have the spirit of prophecy yet. So I better work to get that spirit of prophecy. Because if they're plain to people who can have that gift of the spirit, then that's what I want. And that's what Nephi is inviting us to do. And again, that doesn't mean we have to become perfect scholars in the manner of the Jews. Although, yes, if we want to study and learn that kind of stuff, that's terrific and can add to our enjoyment. But I am still going to maintain that it is the spirit that reveals things to us. And that if we come humbly before the Lord and we pray and ponder, we will see things emerge that make great sense to us, that delight our minds and our hearts. I have never personally taken a course just on Isaiah. I have not even completed a whole book on the words of Isaiah. There are many, and I probably have a couple on my shelves, but I have not like finished them, looked some things up occasionally, but not that much. Mostly I have read, as I continue reading and studying the scriptures, I've read the words of Isaiah, and I have learned to love them. And I do see the Spirit opening up understanding of Isaiah to me every time I read a little more. It's a little more plain. It's a little more beautiful. We have other great testimonies here in chapter 25 from Nephi himself. He testifies of Christ and tells us, let's jump all the way over to verse 20. There is no other name 
given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ of which I have spoken, whereby men can be saved. No other name. There is no other God before him. Now, going back a little bit, we have some beautiful phrases here. Verse 13, they will crucify him. He's speaking about how, of course, God has struggled with the Jewish people throughout. You know, after they left Egypt, they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because they rejected the opportunity to come into the promised land. They didn't believe God would protect them and give that land to them. They were pretty faithless considering all the miracles that had been shown before them. But then after all that trouble, then Christ would come, minister personally to his people. And what happens in verse 13? They will crucify him. And after he is laid in a sepulcher for the space of three days, he shall rise from the dead. And I love this phrase, with healing in his wings. With healing in his wings. My heart is broken right now. And it's easy for me to feel that broken heart day by day. I don't try to dwell on it or to wallow in it, but it's there. But I do trust that Christ has healing in his wings. I trust that that healing is for me and that it will be more than I can ever hope for. I remember many years ago looking up the words from Luke chapter 6, where Christ is telling his people that God will give to us if we obey him. And I wanted to look up the way he describes the way the Lord gives back to us. He says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. In other words, there are no scant measurements in the Lord's abundant giving and healing. It is always more. It's always more than enough. It is more than we can imagine, which is why he tells us that I hath not seen, neither ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. He will come to us with healing in his wings when it's our turn for that completion, when it's our turn to return to him and to our Father, and it will be good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Verse 15, he talks about how the Jews will be scattered among all the nations. And I remember hearing Jonathan Kahn say on a video a while ago, how many nations have tried to destroy the Jews. And he was commenting on the fact that now we have this conflict in the Middle East where, again, people are chanting all through the world from the river to the sea, which is basically talking about the extermination of the Jews, wanting to destroy the Jews. And what Jonathan Kahn said, which was pretty poetic, was that this has been going on from the beginning of the history of the covenant people. He said the Egyptians tried to destroy and eliminate the Jews. Remember, they were trying to get the male babies all killed by the midwives because they were multiplying too much. 
The Egyptians tried, but guess what? The Jews are still here and the Egyptians are gone. Then he talked about the Assyrians tried to eradicate the house of Israel, but the Assyrians are gone and the Jews remain. And then the Babylonians tried to destroy the Jews, but the Babylonians are gone and the Jews remain. Then it was the Greeks tried to destroy the Jews, and then the Romans tried to destroy the Jews, and the Greeks and the Romans are gone, but the Jews remain. God has allowed the nations to scourge his people, and why? Because they would not accept Christ, and he says that is when it will end. In verse 16, Let's go back to verse 15. The Jews shall be scattered among all nations, yea, and also Babylon shall be destroyed. Wherefore, the Jews shall be scattered by other nations. And after they have been scattered, and the Lord God has scourged them by other nations for the space of many generations, yea, even down from generation to generation, until they shall be persuaded to believe in Christ, the Son of God, and the atonement which is infinite for all mankind, And when that day shall come that they shall believe in Christ and worship the Father in his name with pure hearts and clean hands and look not forward anymore for another Messiah, then at that time the day will come that it must needs be expedient that they should believe these things. And the Lord will set his hand again the second time to restore his people from their lost and fallen state and will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among the children of men. We still have to see that day, and some of them won't believe until Christ saves them from that last extinction by setting his foot upon the Mount of Olives, and it will cleave in twain, and the Jewish army, the remnant of the Jewish army, can escape to safety there, and then Christ will descend, and they will recognize him. Now, I just have to mention again, and I've talked about this before when we have mentioned the conflict that's happening in the Middle East, there are only about 16 million Jews on the earth right now. Of course, their birth rate is very low. And so many Jews are secular now. They identify as a people, as a race, but they do not believe in God in the way that we would consider to be religious. There's a maybe a fierce loyalty in some respects to their people, but not so much observance. Now, there are observant Jews. There are Orthodox Jews or even conservative Jews who are more religious. And the Orthodox Jews have a much higher birth rate that is beyond replacement. In fact, very close to the birth rate of members of our church. But there are not that many. Only about 10% are Orthodox Jews, if I remember correctly. So there are only 16 million Jews. Fewer than half of those are in Israel. It's around 8 or 9 million, we would say. So maybe around half. The others, about 40%, are in the United States maybe 5% in France, and the others are in other countries. So these people have been through so much, and here they are again in a fulfillment of prophecy that when I was young was almost unimaginable because I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, and there was still that sort of post-World War II empathy for the Jews. There was still some guilt about what the world had allowed to happen, that Nazi Germany had tried so hard to exterminate the Jews. And that was continuing. The attitude 
was continuing to the point that even as a young person, I could sense it. And when I read prophecies about the last days and saw that all nations would gather against Israel, it was hard to fathom. I believed it, but I thought, wow, that's not going to happen in my lifetime. That's going to happen way in some future time because it was so contrary to what was going on then. But here we are. Here we are in my lifetime. And it didn't just start yesterday. It has been coming for a long time. Just in contrast, to give you an idea of the scope of numbers, there are about 1.8 or 1.9 billion Muslims. And I'm not saying every Muslim wants to exterminate the Jews, but, you know, historically, they have not been on friendly terms. Look at that, 16 million Jews, almost 2 billion Muslims in the world. And there are all kinds of interesting studies that show that, generally speaking, there is a pretty anti-Semitic sentiment amongst a large proportion, at least, of Islam. Okay, let's go on. I want to talk about what we're learning here again from Isaiah. We have one of the same messages that we get from the Apostle John, the beloved, in the book of Revelation, that God wins. It's maybe not as obvious as in the book of Revelation, but it is a persistent theme that God will triumph and that he will judge perfectly. And there is a consequence for our behavior. That's a huge message for the last days when we have so many religions that have basically thrown out even the Ten Commandments, even Christian religions that now are kind of like, well, do what you want. God loves you. You can still be saved. And not much attention paid to chastity or temperance from the vices of the world, but kind of a do whatever you want, God loves you, you'll be fine. So really, this is an important message for our day, that our actions do have consequences, and God will judge them perfectly. But with justice, and then mercy, then this covenant love message is throughout Isaiah. And I hope we're seeing that, how much God loves his people, and all who will join his people, and be adopted into the house of Israel, which could be anybody, because he is no respecter of persons, and he wants all to come, and he denies none. Let me review some things I've talked about before from a speech that President Nelson gave, first in some training that he gave to general authorities, but then in an October 2022, very recent now, speech called The Everlasting Covenant. Once we make a covenant with God, we leave neutral ground forever. God will not abandon his relationship with those who have forged such a bond with him. In fact, all those who have made a covenant with God have access to a special kind of love and mercy. In the Hebrew language, that covenantal love is called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. In fact, I'm going to repeat, all those who have made a covenant with God have access to a special kind of love and mercy. In the Hebrew language, that covenantal love is called hesed. Hesed has no adequate English equivalent. Translators of the King James Version of the Bible must have struggled with how to render hesed in English. They often chose loving kindness. This captures much, but not all, the meaning of hesed. Other translations were also rendered, such as mercy and goodness. Hesed is a unique term describing a covenant relationship in which both parties are bound to be loyal and faithful to each other. We to God 
and God to us. And then he talks briefly about this, which I'm just going to mention. A celestial marriage is such a covenant relationship. I think that's beautiful. That this is what God offers for us in marriage. Now, does that just happen every day? Absolutely not. Entropy is a universal law. Things tend to deteriorate or find their lowest state of energy and organization. So if we are not investing in our marriages, they deteriorate, like everything else. Like I used to tell my children, you think that, you know, the Lego box that has all those millions of Legos in them, do they ever spontaneously create the pirate ship or the Star Wars ships? No, they deteriorate. If you don't put energy into those things, they deteriorate. We need to keep investing in our marriages if we want them to be a covenant relationship that can be an eternal celestial marriage where we are bound together forever in the same kind of covenant as we can have with God as we obey his commandments. Going on with President Nelson's talk, the Savior's atoning sacrifice enabled the Father to fulfill his promises made to his children. We were in a ceiling done by Elder Tad Collister years ago for a family member, and he talked about how the promises of God made in the covenants to his covenant people are like writing a check. But if it were not for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, those checks would bounce. It would be like they hit the bank and the bank would send back insufficient funds or NSF, which Elder Collister said, you know, he had had one happen one time when he was, I don't know when, not sufficient funds in the right account. So he had to make a transfer. But he said, boy, all our covenant promises from God would come back stamped insufficient funds if it were not for Jesus Christ. So let me read that again. The Savior's atoning sacrifice enabled the Father to fulfill his promises made to his children. Christ puts the funds in the right account so that all those promises can be kept. Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, it follows that no man cometh unto the Father but by him. And we just read Nephi's testimony of that. There is no other name. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant becomes feasible because of the atonement of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is at the center of the Abrahamic covenant. Skipping to the end, or close to the end of this speech, President Nelson says, those who keep their covenants with God will become a strain of sin-resistant souls. Now, what's the condition? We need to keep our covenants. We need to be obedient. We need to keep becoming better versions of ourselves. Line upon line, precept on precept. It's not a race of speed, but it's a test of commitment and continuation and diligence. And if we do that, we can become a strain of sin-resistant souls. I want that for my children and my grandchildren. I want them to be sin-resistant souls. Now, they have their own choices to make, and it is their life. But there is a covenant relationship. We just talked about that. God will not forget our children. He will continue to feel after them. If we have taught them, if we continue to keep our covenants, the promises that can come through to our children are astonishing. And we can continue to teach when our children are young, and we can continue to be an example and pray for them as we get older and they get older. And we can see that there will be a blessing of sin-resistant souls 
eventually, at some level, those who keep their covenants will have the strength to resist the constant influence of the world. That is a huge promise for those of us who have children if we keep our covenants. So, okay. Of course, that lovely verse in verse 23 of chapter 25 in Second Nephi, that we write to persuade our children. And then that often quoted statement, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And I've mentioned before that Adam Miller has a nice book called Original Grace. A little interesting in some places. I don't know if I would state things exactly the way he does, but I like it. I like a lot of his ideas there. I see some things a little bit differently, but I do really like the message that we often undersell grace. And I talked about this on the Follow Him visit, gave that story about Corey Ten Boom's aunt. I hope you heard that or we'll go back and listen to that about the grace and how powerful it is. And I mentioned in that episode also that Adam Miller suggests that another way to understand this would be to say that by grace we are saved in spite of all we can do. And I think that's an important idea. Again, faith without works is dead. The brother of Christ talks about that in his New Testament book, and I think we don't want to forget that. But it's not the works that save us. It's Christ that saves us. And the works follow them that believe. We then try to take his name upon us and live as his witnesses every day. So, of course, good works will follow. But they come after the miracle of belief, after accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and covenanting to live in his way and follow him. And yes, as we follow him, those good works mark our lives. But it is not the works that save. It is faith in Jesus Christ and then bringing forth the fruits of that faith through repentance and making and keeping sacred covenants. And he talks about this all the way to verse 27, really beautiful language about this that I'm not going to read because I hope you read it and enjoyed it. And then verse 29, kind of the summary of the conditions of salvation. And now behold, I say unto you that the right way is to believe in Christ and deny him not. And Christ is the Holy One of Israel. Wherefore, ye must bow down before him and worship him with all your might, mind, and strength and your whole soul. And if ye do this, ye shall in no wise be cast out. Again, pretty nice summary. I don't think I've mentioned my dear friend Deb Tolman, who has sent me some beautiful quotes over the years that I've shared. And I should have mentioned her name every time because... I am so indebted to friends like that who read books that I do not read and remember things that I do not remember and share them with me so that I can share them with you. And I shared one of the things that Deb sent to me last week, and I'm going to read it again from Terrell and Fiona Gibbons' book, The Christ Who Heals. I love this. It has meant a lot to me during this tender time. We do not fully understand the cosmic law according to which only pain can launch us on the path of celestial growth only that there is no other way. Participatory suffering weaves the fibers of our heart into those of our children, loved ones, and neighbors through a shared pain that is the most powerful bonding agent in the eternities. Ritually remembering the healer's ultimate act of suffering, that's the sacrament, right? Ritually remembering the healer's ultimate act of suffering is a powerful means of affirming its sanctifying power in our lives. 
my daughter Caitlin sent me some beautiful quotes by Maxwell. We were talking about that message that I shared last week about being joining the Fellowship of Christ's Sufferings, and she sent some beautiful Maxwell quotes. I have read a lot of the writings of Elder Neil Maxwell, and I really do believe that one of his great gifts to the world was to help us suffer with a purpose and to be refined in our suffering rather than to just be burnt into ash. This is from his book, All These Things Shall Give the Experience, and it is in a chapter called The Fellowship of His Sufferings. Mortality offers wonderful earthly pleasures and many eternal joys. It can also carry with it great pain and sorrow. The joys can and will endure for eternity, but the pains and sorrows of mortality are relieved when we depart this earth. Later, he quotes Malcolm Muggeridge, who said, The essential feature and necessity of life is to know reality, which means knowing God. Otherwise, our mortal existence is, as St. Teresa of Avila said, no more than a night in a second-class hotel. Knowing reality involves training and shaping, building and changing, says Elder Maxwell. Trials and problems in this life, at least those we do not create for ourselves, and that's a big caveat because if we're just causing trouble by disobedience, then the trouble we get is a result of that celestial stress. It's not refining. It's just hopefully teaching us to stop putting our hands on hot stoves. So let me go back. Knowing reality involves training and shaping, building and changing. Trials and problems in this life, at least those we do not create for ourselves, are administered by the Lord for our eternal benefit and growth. Easily said, but often hardly endured. Trust in the Lord is often the only path we can take to relieve from such suffering. You know, I remembered this past week or so, my mother talking to her best friend that was in our ward in Provo, a very spiritual lady. They were both wonderful spiritual ladies, and so they talked about the gospel a lot. And one time, my mother's dear friend was talking about one of her sons who had been married for just a few years, who had shared with her that he felt his wife wasn't really very spiritually inclined. And he hoped that she would become more spiritual. And he had told his mother that he was praying for his wife to become more spiritual. And while my mother's friend was grateful that her son was responding in that way, she confided to my mother, I wonder if he understands that he's asking for troubles. And she didn't say that in the way that like he shouldn't ask for it but just in the acknowledgement of her understanding that that growth, that training and building and shaping happens because of problems, that that is how the Lord refines us, is in the furnace of affliction. It's in the weight room. And you know what, brothers and sisters, I still want to be sanctified, and I want my calling and election made sure if I can persist on that path in this life. That's what I want. And if this is the path and it involves this kind of furnace, then I don't glory in the tribulation yet, maybe, but I'm learning to. I'm learning, like Paul, to be grateful for the tutoring hand of the Lord. 
to be grateful that he's mindful of me and that he has healing in his wings. And that even in the valley of the shadow, even in the midst of affliction, that there are tender mercies that remind me of his hesed, his covenant love for me and for my family, for my marriage with Chris, for our relationship, that he loves that relationship and he wants it to continue forever if we will submit to the tutoring experiences. I am trying to listen more, brothers and sisters. I want to learn everything I can. The temple is a wonderful place to listen. Can I just say this? Forgive me. I was in the celestial room the other day, and there were some sweet people who were there in the room and stayed for a while, but their talking was not very quiet, and it made it really hard for me to try to hear the Spirit. And one of the sweet sisters that was attending in that room kind of came up. I think she noticed that I was, you know, just kind of looking to see where the noise was coming from. And she said, I'd love to go and tell them to be quiet, but they've asked us not to do that. So I guess they're trying not to offend anybody. And I didn't want to go up and offend anybody, but I did stay. Thankfully, I wasn't in a hurry to leave. And I stayed until they left so that I could have a little quiet time in this lesser room. So there's my pitch. It doesn't mean we can't whisper, but brothers and sisters, let's be mindful that people are trying to receive revelation in the temple. And I did have a chance to hear some of the whisperings of the Spirit there. Sometimes they are louder, sometimes they are softer, but I am practicing and devoting the time to try to hear the Spirit more in my life. I'm trying to feel more presence from the other side of the veil. I know that it is faith that pierces the veil, and I want my faith to grow and to continue to thin the veil. I don't want it to be a barrier. I want it just to be a temporary separation. We're working on preparing for the second coming of Christ. Christ is on the other side of the veil doing that. I want to be on this side of the veil doing it. So that we're still a covenant couple. We're still working together toward that same goal in our different callings for now. When the healing comes, how great will that day be? Brothers and sisters, we can do this. We can choose glory. We can build Zion. Thanks as ever to my beloved husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>